And we're in Galatians chapter 6, verses 11 to 15. So if you're using the Bible that looks like this in the pew rack in front of you, you can find that on page 975. Page 975. The sermon part of our service is merely trying to help us really camp out on these verses because this is where God's voice is heard. So we are actually going to stand for the reading of God's word to show that that's the most important voice we need to hear. So will you stand with us? This is Galatians 6, 11 to 15. Paul says, See with what large letters I'm writing to you with my own hand? It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised, and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. But far be it from me to boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. You can be seated as we pray. Father, it's good to sit under your word, to hear your word. And it it is our collective prayer right now. We're lifting before you together, hearts united, same spirit, asking that you would open our ears, give us eyes to see. We want to hear from you. We want it to penetrate to the deepest parts of us. We need your help, even just to concentrate through a sermon. We need your help. So God, give us grace. May your spirit work mightily in our midst. That's our prayer. In Jesus' name, amen. A sports car is a sports car, right? Sure, they might have slightly different body types, different price points, but a sports car is a sports car until you look under the hood. Take two sports cars, a, a Mazda Miata, and a Lamborghini Aventador. Both pass the sports car eye test. They look sharp, nice curves and colors, will sit low to the ground, can go fast, take a corner. But the engines of these two sports cars are vastly different. Peek under the hood and the difference becomes abundantly clear. The Aventador has a naturally aspirated V12 engine. It has a 6.5 liter engine that gives it 509 foot-pounds of torque and 730 horsepower. And that engine delivers independent power to each of the four wheels. It has an aluminum double wishbone suspension. I don't know what any of that means. 
I had to read it. But this is what I know. It can go from zero to 60 miles an hour in less than three seconds. And it can take corners in ways that makes your kidneys hurt. In contrast, the Miata, a two-liter fuel-injected four-cylinder engine that delivers 181 power, horsepower, powering only its rear wheels. I don't know what that means either, but it doesn't sound nearly as impressive. <laughs> it's an altogether different vehicle than the Aventador. If you want to know the difference between two sports cars, you look under the hood. You need to understand the engine that powers them. What is it that drives them? And so it is with different versions of Christianity. On the surface, all versions of Christianity might appear quite similar. A form of Christianity is a form of Christianity, right? But the Scriptures do not put all forms of Christianity on the same plane. Indeed, as we've been learning in Galatians, some versions of Christianity condemn us. That's why when Paul gets to close his letter to the Galatians, he takes us under the hood to see these two different versions of Christianity from the engine level. Because if one kills love and the other produces love, and more importantly, if one damns and one can give life, Understanding the deeper differences between the two is critical. And Paul is trying to help us to see the engine underneath. What drives these two versions of Christianity? What are the inner workings, the motivations, the boasts, the priorities? So while these two versions of Christianity might look similar on the surface, they're vastly different underneath. Now the order in our passage is pretty straightforward. Verses 12 and 13 give us the under-the-hood look of false Christianity. And verses 14 and 15 give us the under-the-hood look at genuine Christianity. But to make it really clear how important these verses are to Paul, he does something unique. Look at verse 11. You might have noticed this when I read it. He writes, See with what large letters I'm writing to you with my own hand. Now, typically, as was the custom then, Paul dictated his letters. But so that people would know that the letters were from him and not from some imposter, he'd always close by kind of putting his signature mark, his, his handwriting on the letter in the final greeting. But this time, for this letter, Paul does something a little different. He takes up the pen earlier, not just for the closing greeting. When he goes to write about the two different kinds of engines, the different motives that drive these kind of Christianity, 
he writes there and he says, look, I'm going to start writing right now with my big handwriting. Maybe it's big because he just wasn't a trained scribe or because he had bad eyesight or because he wanted to write it real big so they'd notice. We're not sure. But it's pointing out this is important. We need to pay careful attention. He doesn't typically start writing in his own handwriting this soon. So this is important to Paul. So let's begin by looking under the hood at the false version of Christianity. The version that had bewitched the Galatians. And in looking at these two verses, 12 and 13, I'm going to point out five features of false Christianity. Five features. First feature of false Christianity. It boasts, look what I've done. It boasts, look what I've done. You see that right out of the gate in verse 12. It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh, he says, that lead this this brand of Christianity. Then at the end of verse 13, he says something very similar. They desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. Do you see what he's saying? These Teachers want others to see how impressive they are. They want to rack up stats that in turn can be used to prove their worth. At the end of the day, despite whatever pious language they might put out there, at the end of the day, in their hearts, their boast is, look at what I've done. Look how devoted I am. Look how many converts I have. Look how many people follow me. Look how many people attend my church. Beware, then, of forms of Christianity that glorify a person. It could be that the person glorified is a certain leader. Or it could be that that ministry is trying to give you reason to glory in yourself. Follow these steps. Fit this mold. Compare yourself to them. But either way, the boast is the same. The boast is in the flesh. The eyes are on man. So when you're evaluating various versions of Christianity, look under the hood and try to see what it boasts in. And beware of ministries, forms of Christianity that are making much of people. That's the first feature. It boasts, look what I've done. Second feature, it keeps the prevailing culture happy. It keeps the prevailing culture happy. Look at the end of verse 12. It says, And only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. When I talk about prevailing culture, I'm just talking about the people living around them, the the place they live and what that place values. The prevailing culture of the Jewish Christians that Paul's taking on here was... Jewish. And 
for a Jew at that time to reject the system of Moses and to embrace Jesus would mean that they were cut off from their people. They'd have to break from family. From long-cherished beliefs that they'd learned since they were little. They'd be cut off from community. Certain traditions that were dear to them would be lost. It was a brutal and painful break. Indeed, we read in the book of Acts, That persecution, literally imprisonment, and sometimes even stoning broke out against these people. It wouldn't be all that different from when someone in a staunchly Muslim country converts to Christianity. But these new teachers had a solution for this. So here's how it worked. They say, if if Jesus came as the Messiah for the Jews... So God said he was going to save the Jewish people. Jesus is going to be the way he does that. Then if you want to be able to be part of the inner circle that God's saving, you need to be converted to Judaism first. You have to convert to being a Jew. Then once you become a Jew and take on the whole system that's there, embrace all of that, then Jesus will say, okay, you're part of the inner circle. You're good. I'll save you. You see what this does? It keeps your Jewish family and neighbors happy. Because while you're following Jesus, you're committed to the Mosaic system of the law. When when these teachers would get home from their missions trip, they could boast to their Jewish friends, look how many Jewish proselytes I got. Look how many circumcisions. And they could boast to their Christian friends, look how many people believe in Jesus now because of me. Everybody would like them. Now, of course, there is a problem with their approach. As the Old Testament makes clear, the Old Testament system of the law was merely designed to point people to Jesus. So telling people They had to embrace this system in order to have Jesus was biblically false and actually proved to be an altogether different kind of system than what God was offering in Christ. What they're doing is often called syncretism. It's a big word. It means you're taking the good of Christianity, and you're mixing it with the culture. Sink, sinking those things. Syncretism. You take what the culture around you, the non-Christian culture around you, values and upholds, and you keep holding on to that, but you kind of lift Christianity and place it on top of that so that you only allow Christianity to shape your worldview insofar as it doesn't violate the prevailing the prevailing society's most cherished beliefs. That's syncretism. That's what this false version of Christianity was doing. So I say, when the spirit of the age is wafting through the church, beware. 
when a church refuses to, refuses to stand with Scripture against the prevailing winds of culture, beware. When a church courts the love and acceptance of the culture around it and is willing to compromise on truths in the Bible in order to receive that love and acceptance, that is a dangerous place to be. Feature number two of false Christianity is it tends to keep the prevailing culture happy. Feature number three. It's rooted in human striving, not the Spirit. It's rooted in human striving, not the Spirit. Or you could put it differently. It's focused on the flesh not the Spirit. You might have noticed twice, twice Paul emphasizes the fleshly focus of these teachers. It's there in verse 12, a good showing in the flesh, and at the end of the verse 13, that they may boast in your flesh. After, after showing how this false Christianity focuses on the flesh, Paul contrast that to himself, and he says, I have been crucified to the world and the world to me. Now, both flesh and world are trying to get after the same thing. It's something rooted in our human effort, our human system, the way, the way our world tends to operate. See, we humans can pull levers and turn gears to get people to act and behave just a certain way. And that's why the major religions of our world can pop out people who act good in some predetermined way. Because human systems can modify behavior. They're effective in that. And some forms of Christianity are no different than what the world's offering. Just another system that relies on human effort to get sinful humans to do some virtuous thing and feel good about themselves. But if you embrace these worldly forms, as Paul's been showing us in Galatians, you don't rely on the Spirit To be reliant on the flesh is to reject the heart change that the Spirit brings. False Christianity then is built on human striving. It's rooted in the I can do it system of our world. So we must beware of forms of Christianity that adopt the same works-based striving as everything else this world's offer. Just because it bears the name Christian doesn't mean it's not a knockoff. Let's go to the fourth feature then of false Christianity. It uses the Bible, but doesn't grapple with the Bible. It uses the Bible, but doesn't grapple with the Bible. Now, there's a a really important phrase in the middle of verse 13. Look there with me. 
It says, even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law. They do not themselves keep the law. Now, we've got to understand this little phrase because it's not only going to make sense of this fourth feature, it'll also make sense of the fifth feature. So I want to unpack what Paul's saying and when he says they don't keep the law. In what way do these teachers who are claiming to keep the law not keep the law? Well, in short, they're committed to a system of the law without understanding the wider teaching of the law. Now, we've been covering this, this concept, which is a somewhat complex concept, over and over again in our series on Galatians. But remember what we're saying, that, that Moses didn't just hand down God's system of circumcision, sacrifices, and temple worship. He didn't just do that in a vacuum. He embedded that system under the inspiration of God in a wider teaching that explained the system. So if you take that system and extract it from the wider teaching, on its own terms, it could have been thought to be a means by which we become righteous. Do this and you shall live. I have to follow all this, and if I do all this, I'll be acceptable to God. That's how I achieve my righteousness, by doing. But as we've seen, this system was never meant to be understood on its own terms. It was embedded in a wider teaching of the law, and that broader teaching of the law made clear that things like circumcision and festival days and temple sacrifices were all meant to point to something bigger that was coming. So when these teachers would walk around and brag about being law people, Paul's like, okay, you're committed to the system, but have you read the rest of what's there? You haven't. You don't have a clear grasp of the obvious teaching of the broader law that interpreted the system for you. So he writes in 421, Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? You want to be under the system. Are you not listening to the wider teaching? Now, how can it be then? It's an important question. How can it be that people who say we're people of the law didn't actually understand all of what the law was saying? It happened because they came to the Bible already knowing what they wanted it to say. It's actually easy to get the Bible to agree with you if you're determined enough to do so. You see, there's a, a key difference between using the Bible and grasping the Bible. These teachers... We're using the Bible like a drunk uses a lamppost, more for support than for illumination. They're leaning against it to support what they already think instead of letting it shine down a light and help them see clearly. You see, the teachers miss the wider teaching of law 
Because they didn't care to pay attention to it. And because they missed that, they couldn't keep it in the very ways Moses called them to, which we're going to get on to explain with the fifth feature. But I just want you to see that this fourth feature of false Christianity, it uses the Bible, but it doesn't grapple with the Bible. And it's very closely related to the fifth feature of Christianity. The fifth feature of false Christianity, it can't actually change the heart. It's kind of the bottom line. It can't actually change the heart. Now you see, if these, if these teachers were really paying attention to Moses, they would have seen that he wasn't as concerned about outward forms. He was concerned about what was going on in their hearts. So in Deuteronomy 10, he says, circumcise the foreskin of your heart. That's a pretty provocative way of drawing attention to it. And Leviticus 20 says, you are to be holy to me as I, the Lord, am holy, completely set apart just like God is holy. As we saw a few weeks ago in Deuteronomy 6, he says, you're to love Yahweh with all your heart, with all your soul, and all your strength. Now, if you get that, that God actually doesn't just want outward actions, but he wants the heart, you realize that you need something far greater than, hum- or than, than animal sacrifices and a, a sinful human mediator. You realize that what's going to fix you isn't circumcision. You think, I need my heart circumcised. And then the prophets come along and they say, there's going to be a day when the Messiah appears and He's going to be able to give us new hearts. The law will actually be written in here. Will be transformed in here. But these false teachers weren't all that interested in actually understanding what God was saying in the law. So while they were slavishly devoted to certain elements of the system, telling people they couldn't be saved if they didn't follow them, they were missing how short they actually fell of the perfect righteousness required even by the system of the law. So, while they're holding to this works-based system, they didn't see that the works-based system that they were holding to actually damned them. They thought they were law keepers, but that's because they misunderstood the nature of the law. Moses' wider teaching made clear that God was after the heart, and so their works-based system was only exposing, or should only be exposing, how dark their hearts actually were. The system of the law couldn't change the heart. Jesus had to do that. And that's why Paul's so concerned, because when people revert back to the system that depends on human effort and exalts humans, it's going to leave their hearts unchanged. All right, so we've seen these five features. I want to summarize them by having a little bit of fun. Perhaps you've heard of Jeff Foxworthy's You Might Be a Redneck If. For fear of offending someone, I won't repeat his list. 
But at the risk of offending people, I've made my own list. You might be a Maple Avenue lifer if. You might be a Maple Avenue lifer if you know how the Springles and Rosinskis are related. You might be a Maple Avenue lifer if any discussion of pews and chairs gives you PTSD. You might be a Maple Avenue lifer, lifer if you know why our farm fellowships are picnics at people's houses, but our church picnic is a fellowship at a farm. Fun aside, let me adopt that same form to underscore this far more serious matter. It might be false Christianity if it might be false Christianity if its boast is ultimately man, not the cross of Christ. It might be false Christianity if it dodges ill will by adopting the values of its surrounding culture. It might be false Christianity if it majors in man-made systems and human effort. It might be false Christianity if it uses the Bible but doesn't grapple with the Bible. It might be false Christianity if it's powerless to change the heart. I know some of you in this room are not followers of Christ. And it could be because the kind of Christianity you're, you're opposed to is actually the variety of Christianity that Paul's railing against here. It could be that if you told Paul what you don't like about Christianity, he'd agree with you. Even God would agree with you. Don't refuse to drive the Aventador because you think it's no different than a Miata. All of us, all of us must be on guard against counterfeit Christianity. Might look nice on the outside, have a nice paint job, but it's, what under, it's what's under the hood that matters. So it shouldn't surprise us then that when Paul turns to describe authentic Christianity, it's pretty much the opposite of what he just described. So verses 14 and 15 are going to describe genuine Christianity. They describe the truth that rescued Paul from his slavish devotion to Phariseeism to true freedom. They describe the truth that was entrusted to Paul by Jesus himself. And they pretty much describe the exact opposite of the false Christianity he's described in verses 12 and 13. So to make these differences clear, I'm going to draw out five features of genuine Christianity, and you'll see they pretty much correspond to the five features from the first list. So first feature of genuine Christianity, it boasts, look at what Christ has done. 
It boasts, look at what Christ has done. False Christianity boasts in human flesh. But do you see what Paul boasts in? It's right there in verse 14. But far be it from me to boast, not in anything, any, not in anything except, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. The cross of Christ, that's it. The cross where Jesus became sin so that we could have His righteousness. The cross where Jesus drank in full the cup of God's wrath so that sinners like us wouldn't have to. The cross where Jesus undid the curse that came with the fall. The cross where Jesus restored us to a right relationship with our Creator. That's it. That's what Paul wants to boast in. That's all he wants to talk about. When you go to his church meeting, you walk away marveling at Jesus' work on the cross. When you read his books, you leave pondering the weight of what Jesus did for you. When he's shouting glory, he's not shouting his own glory. He's shouting the glory of Jesus. There's a Jesus people singer from the 1970s named Keith Green. His definition of Christianity went something like this. He said, a Christian is someone who's bananas for Jesus. That's a little too simplistic, but it's getting after the right point. Genuine Christianity boasts in what Jesus did for us on the cross. It doesn't need to prove itself by what we've accomplished, the good things we're doing, or how we're better than so-and-so. Because sinners, saved by grace, only want to talk about their Savior. It's the first feature of genuine Christianity. It boasts in what Jesus did for us on the cross. Second feature... It has no need to please man. It has no need to please man. Because Jesus is everything, the world is nothing. It has no hold. There's no need to court the world's favor. To submit to its system so that it'll think we're okay. Paul says, the world has been crucified to me. And I to the world. He says something interesting in verse 15. He says, neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision. And just stop for a moment and think about what it meant for Paul to say circumcision doesn't mean anything. He didn't just grow up a Jew. He didn't just grow up a Pharisee. He grew up a Pharisee of Pharisees. I mean, he was the star pupil. He was the head of the class. He made his dad proud, and his principal proud, and his coach proud. There were articles on him featured in the town newspaper, and he had thousands of followers on Facebook. So for him to say, circumcision doesn't mean anything, 
is for him to reject all that. It might be like Michael Jordan renouncing basketball. Or Rick Mercer renouncing Canada. Why can he leave all that behind? Why can he take the scorn? Bear up under the loss of prestige and the belittling that goes with it. Because he has all he needs in Christ. He's been made right with his creator. He's a new creation. All else pales in comparison. Because authentic Christianity grasps what God has done for us in Christ, the world no longer has a grip on it. We no longer go about trying to please people. So genuine Christianity has no need to please man. Third genuine feature of genuine Christianity, it's rooted in the spirit, not human striving. It's rooted in the spirit, not human striving. You see the opposite of before now, I know in our passage, the Spirit's not overtly mentioned. We have to understand it when Paul, what Paul's saying in verses 14 and 15 is the culmination of his whole argument in the book of Galatians. So when we hear Paul say new creation, we, we know he's talking about the new life that the Spirit brings. Remember all those things I said happened on the cross, all that Jesus did for us, and drinking the cup of God's wrath and dealing with the curse? Well, all of what Jesus did on the cross becomes ours when we put our faith in Him and His Spirit comes and makes us alive. It's the Spirit that causes us to become new creations. So you don't, you don't become a new creation by tinkering with oneself and trying harder to fit some prescribed religious order. You become a new creation when God's Spirit regenerates you. When He makes you alive. When He gives you a new heart. When He causes you to be born again. So true Christianity then is after the true work of the Spirit in people's lives. It's worried about new creation. The new creation that the Spirit brings. Not the prescribed behavior that our systems demand. And that's why it's neither circumcision nor uncircumcision that's anything. Because the Jewish system, with all its strengths, because it was ordained by God, that Mosaic system was ordained by God as a clue pointing forward to what Jesus was going to do. The Jewish system, with all its advantages, at the end of the day, is no more helpful than the pagan system or it's not, it ultimately is no better at saving you and making you alive than the pagan system if you're not going to put your faith in Jesus. Because the Jew and the Gentile are on the same plane. Alike dead in our sin. Alike in need of a Savior. Alike in need of new hearts. The Roman polytheistic religion of the, t- of the state 
with its sueritas and its noble vision of man. Won't do it. Can't save you. And the Jewish devotion to the Mosaic system, instead of relying on the Christ to whom it pointed, won't do it. Can't save you. But do you know what can save you? Trusting the work of Christ. God's Spirit making you alive. By which we become new creations. So true Christianity will depend on God's Spirit to bring life. Not human effort to move up the next rung. Fourth feature. It grapples with the Bible. It doesn't just use it. It grapples with the Bible. It doesn't just use it. Like the third, like the third feature, this fourth one isn't explicitly in our passage either. But again, we have to see how verses 14 and 15 are the culmination of the whole letter. And the letter so far has been painstakingly showing us that the Old Testament makes no sense apart from Christ. The Old Testament shows us that we need to be made alive by faith alone, not by works. It showed us that the promise of God was our path to rescue, not simply being born of Abraham. So as you read Galatians, you can tell that Paul had thought long and hard about his Old Testament. He wasn't just shoehorning it into what he already believed. He'd grappled with it. And Paul had grappled with it so much that he rejected his former way of viewing it and embraced it instead as a book that pointed to Jesus with every clue. As you read Galatians, you can almost get into his thought process, right? He'd grown up thinking that being circumcised and descended of Abraham was the hallmark of being righteous in the people of God. But then he dug into Genesis and he noticed God had allowed two sons to be born to Abraham. Both of them circumcised. One based on human striving and effort. One based on faith in the promise. Both circumcised, both descendants of Abraham. But only one was the line which salvation came through. Only one became part of God's chosen people. Why would God do it that way? Why would God allow two sons of Abraham? He's pounding his head, pounding his head. What's going on with that? And aha, it's to show us that our hope for salvation isn't by being descended of Abraham or even being circumcised. Our hope for salvation is believing the promise and standing in the line of faith. He grappled with the Scriptures. He refused to just use them to reinforce what he already believed. And so, as we've seen in Galatians, through wrestling with the Bible, he came to see that the cross of our Lord Jesus was everything because it enabled us to become new creations. See, genuine Christianity, like Paul, doesn't just 
use the Bible. It grapples with the Bible. And that leads to the fifth feature of genuine Christianity. It actually changes the heart. And that's the crux of it all. One form of Christianity can change our stubborn, sin-sick hearts. The other can't. One can make us new creations. The other can't. One can make us into people who really love in a way that reflects God's love. One can't. One can go zero to 60 in less than three seconds. The other engine rumbles and grinds trying to get there, exploding before you even get to 40. The cross is everything. It's what makes us alive. It's what allows for the penalty of our sin to be paid. It's what allows us to be reconciled to God. So true Christianity is making much of that cross and the new life it brings. Once you get that, you don't need to prove yourself to man or to curry the favor of the world. All of that fades. All sorts of knockoff forms of Christianity will arise and try to peddle their wares, fooling us by using the Bible, using Christian lingo. But any version of so-called Christianity that takes its eyes off of God rescuing us through Christ is a fraud. In the end, all it will have left to offer us is some retread man-made system where we measure ourselves off of one another or do all we can to make the world like us. Such brands of Christianity can't make us alive. They can't deal with the crud in here. So let's, as a church, glory in Jesus. Let's glory in the cross. Let's make that our boast all the day long. It's fitting then that God has given us a tangible way of doing that this morning. The Lord's table. A chance to slow down together and actually taste and feel and consider all that God has done for us in the cross of Christ. Will you pray with me? God, thank you for what Jesus has done for us. Thank you for rescuing us through the cross of Christ. Even as we take of this meal, may it be our boast. In Christ's name.